All right, so it might be a little clumsy here on my end, um, but I'm not able to, to click through. So uh, thank you guys for helping me through this. But the, the PowerPoint's up there and your Bible is actually gonna be what carries you. Let's go to the next slide. Um, just a little bit of an overview again in terms of seven churches of Revelation, where we are at right now in Revelation 2 and 3. We're in the third church, Pergamum, or at least in this map it says Pergamos, but it's Pergamum, and you can kind of see how the, the churches are somewhat set up. It's starting from Ephesus, church one. If you kind of start going clockwise, you'll actually be running the course of how John shares his revelation that God has given to him. So Pergamum is church number three because from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, that's church number three. And we will end up all the way around so that in church number seven, Laodicea, uh, but that's kind of the pattern that we go. And it's kind of helpful, probably even from John, as the Holy Spirit revealed to him these churches to be able to then guide the readers and the listeners along. Now, these are real churches back in the time. Uh, they're not real churches now. They're real cities, many of them, settled over many, many times. But these are real churches. These were real churches at the time. So there were specific things that the hearers of those churches would have understood immediately and thought, you know what? This is important that God is saying this and revealing this to our church and that Jesus has a word for us. But being that the church is the body of Christ and the church is the people, God's own peculiar people that he is saved and he is sanctifying and that he is continuing to build and continuing to strengthen and continuing to rescue, there's word in there for us too. Here at FCBC Walnut, here at this stage of our season in this country, in the world, so on and so forth. In every single message to the seven churches, there's always something for God's people, period. And that's where we're going to try to draw application as it relates to us. The universal insights, the universal encouragements, and even their harsh rebukes that come you know, that's going to be something that is meant for us to take heart as well. Now, all of these letters to the churches, they have these simple aspects to it. So it's kind of an order of things that then, as the Holy Spirit reveals the words of Jesus to a particular church, it comes in these segments. There's always a revelation of Jesus himself. There's some aspect when Jesus revealed himself in Revelation 1 to then give these words and give this vision to his people that there were, it was described a certain way about him and what John saw, while there's an aspect that always gets, always gets tied in to each church. Then, usually Jesus has a word of praise to say for a particular church, not always, but most of the time. Then, he then gives a criticism or some kind of condemnation for what it is that they're not doing in a way that's pleasing to God. Then, he tells them how they could change, and then finally, he offers them an encouragement. And so, most of the letters to the churches contain all five of these segments. Some have less than five. Well, fortunately for today, we will have all five in the letter to Pergamum. So you will be able to see it kind of track from one part to another, to another, to another. And that's how the outline of the sermon is going to go, pretty much looking at each one and breaking it down a little bit. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide here. Now, this city, Pergamum, there was a church there we talked about, but this was also beyond it being a city with a church, this was also a very cosmopolitan place. You'll see many of these cities being more established because that's the reason why there was a church established as well as the Holy Spirit worked through the ministry of Paul and others. Uh, so this church or this city was a leading center in a few different ways. Number one, it was a leading cultural center. The biggest library at the time was in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which wasn't necessarily called Egypt at the time, but it was in Alexandria. But the second largest library of that time in that area of the world was in Pergamum. So this was a very cultural place where people came to learn, people came to read, people came to study, people came to write. 
there was a lot of famous sculptures. There was a lot of uh, you know really uh, beautiful artwork. So this was a place in which people went to and lived in simply to become you know more cultured in terms of their expression, in terms of their understanding. This was also a leading religious center. Uh, this was a place in which there was tons of temples being built to the gods and goddesses of that time, including Zeus, who was kind of the big you know, main god there. Uh, but then also this was a place of emperor worship. And when I say emperor worship, it actually is exactly what I'm describing. It's the worship of a person. It's a declaration that the leader of the Roman empire is God. This sounds strange maybe to us now because I like to think that none of us think that our leaders are gods, but it wasn't weird back in that time. And so the Roman emperor has in many ways, both in his words and actions and how he ruled, pretty much acted as if he is God, that he is just someone slightly under than the greatest of gods, but he is God. And that then, you know, his authority flows from there and that the obedience that's demanded from his citizens come accordingly. So there were temples then set aside for him too, that the Roman emperor had specific places where people can go to worship this human ruler. That has importance when we go further on in this passage because it is particular that particularly that aspect of the city that then made itself a challenge to christians that made it something that opposed christ as being the only king that the emperor was worshiped there as the god and that as the king christians got in trouble for this for not worshiping the roman emperor they were called atheists because they were people that were seen as people that did not worship and believe in god who was the Roman emperor, but then they worship this other being named Jesus, whoever he is. And so that has relevance to this particular city. Finally, this was also a political center. And the interesting thing about this city in particular is that the Roman empire had the ability in their authority to be able to put people to death. So we call that death, you know, death penalty, capital punishment, right? Well, but it wasn't every city where you could do this. So I, I guess it's kind of like us too. Not every single state has capital punishment. But one of the few cities that allowed capital punishment in the Roman Empire was Pergamum. And so then this is a place in which life was taken by the emperor for disobedience or breaking the law and so on and so forth. So then you kind of connect that to the image that was used of Jesus and you start putting the two together to see, wait, sword, capital punishment. Wow, life and death. And that's how serious this particular letter is. So with that, let's go to the next slide. And let's look at the very first verse and um, one more. This is the beginning of this letter to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Here we see Jesus. Here we see Christ. And Christ is bearing a sharp two-edged sword, one that could take away life, one that could put someone to death. And that's exactly the point. Because in Pergamum, it was a city by which this happened by decree, but Jesus himself had greater power than any emperor. Now we know when you just kind of scour through the Bible that whenever there's this mention of a sword, that God oftentimes puts it in relationship to the word of God. We remember in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, that what is the word of God? It is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to tear asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow. In other words, whatever it is that your body and you are made of, God's word can slice right through it to get to the core of it, to get to the true substance, to get to what is actually you. And with that, also knowing the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's how the writer of Hebrews describes the word of God. 
Well, in this case, it's very similar in that Jesus comes wielding a sword, and this is a sword that's more powerful than a normal sword. This is a sword that's more powerful than the emperor's sword. This is the word of God that can go into your heart and that can dissect your church and that can look beyond what you do on the outside and what you claim in terms of your identity and your affinity. And Jesus is able to look right into the heart of this church and this gathering of people and know, what do you love? What do you care about? You say you're a Christian, but let me reveal to you what you care about and what you really are worshiping. Well, the next section is one on praise. So if you go to the next slide in verse 13, the vision shows this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So I mentioned that this is a city of civic importance. It was a city of cultural importance. This was a city of religious importance. And with all the different temples to gods and the focus on emperor worship, most scholars have said that that is the reason why that this city in a vision was called the throne of Satan. It is a place in which people that are opposed to God, opposed to Jesus, they have their buildings, they have their altars, and that they have their prominence. So that's the reason why this vision points to the city of Pergamum as Satan's throne. And at the end, it says where Satan dwells, right? And people will get that right away. You know, we just recently went past July 4th. I don't know if you guys shared any highlights from July 4th in your community groups. Uh, I walked through this area where fireworks was legal and I had a little bit of a fear of my life. Not that, you know, it wasn't fun, but man, people were having a little bit too much fun. You're kind of trying to go around in like a maze and people were just shooting them all up in the air. It was beautiful, uh, but it was scary. Now, this idea of celebration is very minimal. When in the city of Pergamum, you're talking about celebration of the emperor, celebration of the empire, celebration of the state, it's beyond patriotism. It is nationalism. It is worship of a human being. It is complete adulation of a regime. Very different. That is what was expected of the citizens of Pergamum that they needed to pretty much have a July 4th every single day. And it's not just you know, having a good time, partying, whatever it is, but it's that kind of allegiance. It's that kind of, I live for the emperor and the emperor alone. I live you know, for his glory. I live for his renown. I live for his flourishing and for his fame. That's what it was like to live in that city. So this is more than just patriotism, loving country, appreciating and grateful for being in a particular country, praying for the leaders, wanting for the good and the prosperity of a country. All of that is great. All of that is biblical. All of that is Christian. But in Pergamum, it is so much more than that. It is talking about worship of the empire. It is worship of a particular nation. And when you put the emperor, and when you put the nation to that high of a level, guess what? Even the worship of Jesus becomes idolatry to them. So you see here, somebody was killed for their faith. A person was actually named, and I love that about this section. Not that I love that someone was killed, but clearly John received a vision for which it was anchored in history. It was anchored in truth. He wouldn't receive a vision and just randomly throw out some dude's name. This person was killed simply for being Christian. And it's because this person refused to worship the empire, that this person did not 
just want to be patriotic, but this person wanted to worship Jesus and he refused to idolize the state, idolize the country. You know, this is something that we all have to kind of think about, right? We all have to think about what it is that we worship, what it is that we bow to. And that relates even to you know, our relationship with wherever country that we represent and where we come from and even in this country, that we need to pray for our leaders, that we need to participate as citizens, that we need to make disciples and we need to love people. We need to pay our taxes. We need to you know, do the things that are right. And we need to be people that are for the, the success and the prosperity of our country, but it can't be our God. It can't be where we think that America equals necessarily something that always glorifies God. Interestingly enough, this idea of America being so high in and of itself didn't come from an unknown place. Uh, you know, if you're talking about, you know, something very recent, if you're talking about things in the 20th century, there was this thing called the Cold War, which was after World War II, right? You had like the Soviets and, and all of these, you know, uh, kind of communist countries. And then you had, you know, people, you know, that America we belong to. And, and there was all this, you know, fighting. There was all this like, you know, bickering and, you know, kind of competing for advances and so on and so forth. But see, they were atheists. And as a country, we were consisting mostly of Christians. So during that time, it became a lot of, okay, well, it's not so much just, let's say, the communists against the capitalists or like, you know, uh, the Americans against the Russians. It was like the Christians against the atheists. And then a lot of times we kind of think, oh, then America equals Christians. Well, there's a lot of Christians living in America, but it's not about worshiping a country. It's about being Christians in your country, right? And making disciples and praying for our leaders, participating and you know, in, kind of impacting on a grassroots level. Um, a country cannot save you, but Christians can make a country better, right? And so a lot of times, you know, we can forget that we are first citizens of God and his kingdom that lasts eternally. And then as citizens of his kingdom, we are also many of us citizens of particular countries. And for the people of that time, they would have a passage like First Peter chapter 2 that would ring in their minds. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read it to you. First Peter chapter 2, starting from verses 9 all the way through 12. This is a, a, a scripture. This was a, an exhortation given to Jewish Christians that were scattered all over the place who were probably of all kinds of nationalities. But Peter wanted to remind them who they really were. What is the identity that truly mattered? In verse 9. He said this, but you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, people that don't really belong to this world, but certainly are citizens and residents of earthly places. But he calls them sojourners and exiles because why? They belong to God, right? That kingdom is eternal and forever. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when Christ returns. So the praise to Pergamum is, you know what? You never forsook your Christian identity. You've continued to say that we worship Jesus first, that we are God's people first, that we are a peculiar people of God first and not emperor worshipers first. 
That was the praise. And that is a difficult thing to maintain. That is actually high praise because imagine how easy it is even for us now when we are in somewhat of a post-Christian culture as it's going in that direction, when a lot of times you find out or you're having to share about what your beliefs are or people find out about your particular thing, thinking or worldview. And, and you're like, well, I believe in the Bible. Oh, I, I believe that God made everything. You know, I believe, you know, in the institution of family. I believe in, you know, making disciples and not just living for treasures of this world. And the looks that you get nowadays, and not even just the looks, but in the cancel culture, the ways in which you get written off simply for saying, not with a lot of emotion, that I actually just believe this. I just believe what the Bible says. I don't know everything, and I won't understand every single thing the Bible says, but I actually believe it, and I want to follow Jesus, and I want to live it out. It's getting harder and harder to do that, but that's the praise that the, the, the citizens of Pergamon received, the church in Pergamon received, that you did not forsake my name. But here's the thing. There is a very big criticism. So let's go on to verses 14 to 15. I'll start reading from verse 14. But I, and this is Jesus, okay? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. If you go to the next slide, I want to bring up a couple of passages that are from the book of Numbers that will help us understand a little bit more of this reference to Balaam. Uh, people back then certainly understood exactly uh, what uh, Jesus was talking about when he referenced Balaam. And so these two passages, I think, will help us to connect the dots. So Balaam, it was a part of a story involving Moses leading the Israelites through the wilderness. So when he was leading them through the wilderness, he encountered a king named Balak. And this king, who was not a Hebrew, uh, this king saw this group of Hebrews as, as a threat. So he's like, well, you know what? I'm going to hire someone to curse them so that they get out of my way and they're not a threat to me. So he hired this guy named Balaam. This guy Balaam is not Hebrew, uh, but he was someone that kind of just was known for doing this. He, he blesses people, he curses people, and apparently it works. Um, so Balaam then steps into the picture, but for some reason, he sensed that God was telling him, do not curse Israel, right? And this happened multiple times where he just knew that, that he shouldn't curse Israel. He shouldn't curse Moses's people. So instead, he blessed them. And even in his prophecies, he talked about the coming of the Messiah as a part of, you know, what is going to come out of this nation that God is building. But if you look at these two passages, we see the impact that Balaam actually had. Even though he didn't outwardly curse them, this is what he did. Let's look at the passage on the left. Numbers 25, 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. A few chapters later, this is a summary of what happened there. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. All right, so here's what happened then with Balaam. He didn't outwardly curse God's people, 
But what he did is he brought influences to God's people from within, from behind the scenes, and had them engage in sexual immorality and idolatry. So that even though outwardly they're like, oh yeah, we don't curse God, but in their relationships and in how they related to each other and how they were acting out the sinful desires of their heart, they were pretty much worshiping everyone else and anything else except for God. They were committing idolatry and immorality. So that's the connection that Jesus wanted to make with the church in Pergamum. That yes, you never said, we are not a church. We are not Christians. We do not love Jesus. That we, we do not owe allegiance to Jesus. But you know what? Behind the scenes, how you guys relate to each other, there's a lot of idolatry and there's a lot of immorality going on. And that's not okay. It's not just not okay. It is evil. So here it is. The church in Pergamum, they became a church in name only but behind the scenes, whatever it is that the culture said was okay, was allowable, was something that you have the freedom to engage in that was apart from the will of God in his design for sex, apart from the will of God in his design for worship, apart from the will of God in his design for a family, for people, for parents and children, all of these different ways by which people can sin and indulge in that sin. That is what Pergamum is guilty of. Now, idolatry is something that is more than just sexual morality. Those are two different things. Sexual morality, you can imagine what it might be. But idolatry, it could even be where they might not be worshiping the emperor in public, but in terms of where their hope is or where their desire or who they're trying to please or what ladder they're trying to climb or what they're trying to succeed in, really, it is not for the glory of God. It is not for the exaltation of God's name, but it is really still running with the culture. They wanted everything that Pergamum had to offer, but it's just that on the outside, they said, oh no, but we're Christians and we're never gonna deny Jesus. We're never gonna blaspheme Jesus' name, but that's not how they lived. Bruce Riley Ashford, he's a, an author and he wrote this book called Every Square Inch. And he talks about three ways in which a church can engage the culture. And I'm going to you know, tell you all three and you tell me which one was Pergamum, okay? So the first one is to be against the culture. So you just want to run away. I want nothing to do with the, the community and the people that I, that I live amongst. I just want to get out of here. I'm just going to lock myself up somewhere and just hide. The second is that you're of the culture in that there's no difference between you and another person that's not a Christian. Uh, you guys are the same in terms of you know, what you want, what you say, what you do, what you wear. And some of that is not evil. It's not bad, but it's just you blend perfectly in. You just fit right in. You, no one would ever know that, you know, you were following Jesus. But then the third way of impacting culture or engaging culture is just this, to be in the culture, but then for the culture. And there's a difference between of the culture, which means you're identified by the culture, versus for the culture, and it's that you're saying that I'm going to live out who I am as a Christian with the culture as my audience, with the culture as the recipients and the, 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 the people that I will invest in and the various aspects you know, of, of shaping that so that we're not going to just be hiding, but we're also not going to be blending in, but we're going to just be Christians and 
not be Christians that are ashamed of it, but be Christians that are going to engage for the culture. If you go to the next slide, there's a quote I wanted to share. Uh, Jordan Wooten is a, is a writer. He talks about this. Cultural engagement is what happens when the church makes the way of Jesus plain before those walking along the wide path of destruction. So you don't take away any of the warnings of God's word. You don't take away any of the calls of Jesus to repent and believe for wide is the way to destruction, but narrow is the way to life, right? You don't take away any of that, but you engage by making the gospel clear and not hiding. If culture is primarily about people, then Christian cultural engagement is primarily about introducing those people to the way, the truth, and the life. So that is what it looks like to live for Jesus in the world, not hiding away from people and putting your light beneath a bushel or blending in with the people so much where people are like, wait, you're a Christian? How is that possible? I don't see you live differently at all. Right? Even though you might, let's say, go to church or say Christian things, have a Christian bumper sticker, wear a Christian shirt, you're the same person as anyone else that's not professing faith in Jesus. Well, anyway, so that was the criticism, that pretty much as a gathering, as a church of, of, of believers, that their belief was very shallow. It was all on the outside. It was all dressing. But in their hearts, in terms of their desire to follow Jesus and to repent and believe, that wasn't there. Okay, So then verse 16 takes us to the application. Jesus said this, therefore, repent. You're pretty much going to find that to be the application in every single one, but it's pretty much the case. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You read that second part. I hope it kind of shakes you a little bit. You know, a lot of times we have this picture of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. That's true. But when it comes to warring against sin, Jesus fights sin and evil with the sword of his mouth. And the scary thing is, it's not like he said he'll do this whenever. He's going to come soon. And this is where within a context, if you were receiving this and you were the church in program, you're like, oh, I got to get my act together now because Jesus is going to gun for me soon. And who even knows how that church ended? We don't know how that church ended. For all we know, Jesus came and the sword just took that church apart. However it is that he ordained for it to be so. So repent. Repent means turn away from the, the idolatry, turn away from the sexual immorality that you as a church were engaging in. No more compromises. No more hiding behind the scenes of facade of a Christian or a churchgoer or being born in a Christian family or having Christian friends or wearing Christian clothes or going to a Christian building. No more of that. Repent in your heart. And if you're talking about idolatry, as college students, as people that are making a future for yourselves, people pursuing a vocation and a life and possibly relationships and partnerships and community, I want to share this quote with you. This is by an author named Joshua Chatrow. He wrote a story or book called Telling a Better Story, and it's, it's, it's an apologetics book to engage non-Christians. But he said one of the idols that you can have is this in life. That, and this sounds very Christian, by the way, because I'm sure you've heard this or you maybe thought this, okay? 
that this is a Christian idol. God exists to help us find our true potential, feel better about ourselves, and guide us to treat others with dignity and respect. Well, yeah, of course you treat others with dignity and respect. Yeah, of course God wants you to find your identity in Christ. But it's not about making you a better you. It's about making you closer to Jesus. So even kind of a, a beautiful, pretty, kind of a, you know, almost like a, a warm, fuzzy kind of, you know, way of seeing Christianity, that's not enough. That almost could be idolatry if you hold that in front of you, that the perfect picture is God's will for me. When in the context of this letter in particular, the reference is Antipas was killed for his faith. That's not very pretty. That's not fuzzy. That doesn't make anyone feel good. But if that's how Jesus was treated, then that's how we need to expect to be treated. What is the great commandment? Jesus summarized the entirety of the law with this simple idea, is to love God and to love neighbor as yourself. That's not easy at all. It sounds nice. It's a good poster. But loving God and loving neighbor completely as yourself. And then if, Lord willing, if you, any of you, you know, you get married, you're going to commit to do that for one person for the rest of your earthly life. It's not easy. Loving God, loving neighbor. That's the farthest thing away from instant gratification, sexual immorality, or idol worship make you feel good about yourself. But that's what Jesus says that the church of Pergamum needs to do. They need to repent and they need to stop the ways in which they are going astray. Verse 17 then comes with this promise. And I'll tell you, when I read this, I was a little confused, but that's okay. We're 2,000 years later, so maybe a little confusion is okay. I think I could kind of imagine where he's going with this, okay? So verse 17, he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all of us. We're part of the churches, okay? We're a church, part of the churches, then we need to hear this. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You know, God fed the Israelites in the desert with manna. So this seems like a promise that God will continue to nourish his people. He'll feed them. He'll take care of them. You know, you might have to give up certain things if you choose to abstain from immorality and idolatry, but God will nourish you. You will not miss out on anything that you need to survive and to live, even if it means that you don't live much longer. You will not be missing what ultimately matters. God will nourish you. He will feed you. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. I will give you, I will give him a white stone. I have no idea what it is. I mean, I don't know if that's like the, 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 the bonus infinity stone. I don't know what that is, but it sounds something precious. And I think that's the point. Whatever it is, the white stone is, it's something important. Otherwise it wouldn't be mentioned. It's precious, it's special, okay? It's a gift. But on the stone, there's a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You, as a church, you, as a follower of Jesus, will be known by God in a personal way. I don't think we could ask for anything more meaningful than that if we truly believe that God made people to know him, to walk with him, and to love him forever. And that the new heavens and the new earth is an existence with which there's no walls, no barriers, no sin, and no separation between God and his people. 
but we're not just a part of this giant mass of people that you could just see that goes on for miles and miles and miles, but with no personality, with no particular uniqueness, but that every person made an image of God that has put their faith in Jesus, that has been rescued and redeemed by him, and that have been glorified, that will be glorified by him in their resurrection bodies. God will know you. He will know you so much more than anyone else can know you. And he will know you so much more than honestly you know yourself. And we know how much we can deceive ourselves sometimes with our wants and our desires. So it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. You're going to get the stone, precious, but what's on the stone is your name. And it's a name that God gives to you because he knows you. He wants you. That's why he sent his son to save you from your sins. And one who perseveres, a church who perseveres, a people who perseveres, then reveals themselves and show themselves to be a people of God's own possession. So with that, I want to close with this short Bible passage. Matthew chapter 6, verses 32 to 33. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. For the Gentiles, who are the pagan people, people that do not put their faith in God, this is a very broad term, okay, Gentiles, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So God knows your heart. He knows all the ways in which you are in lack, all the ways in which you're struggling, all the ways in which you are just wrestling and your eyes can't help but look to the side and to others and everywhere else but him because you are desperate and you are needy and you are not in a good place sometimes. He knows you need the things that you do. But he says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's directly related to the challenge to Pergamum. It's not enough to seek God and put a label or sticker that says church or Pergamum on the outside of your building. What he's after are people who seeks his righteousness in the inside of their hearts, who run away from idolatry, who abandon sexual immorality, and who pursue holiness and righteousness. Stumbling along, as we all do, there is no perfect Christian, but we follow a perfect God. And all these things will be added to you. Now, does this take a measure of faith? You bet. This is all faith, you guys. I don't have something in my hand that I can go, boom, look, it's true. But we believe in the word of God. And we believe in a savior who died and is raised for our sake. So let's go to the last slide. These are the two application questions. But, you know, as it is, as, as the Lord moves in your sharing time, in your community groups, just uh, go ahead and address however much or however low you want. But really, I want you to engage with the passage. And especially if there's ways in which the, the challenge and the call to repent for the church in Pergamum directly applies to you or directly applies to things you've been wondering about or directly applies to a situation you're involved with or familiar with or thinking about, talk about that and pray for each other and pursue Jesus together. Here's question number one. How might Christians be tempted to compromise their moral and theological convictions in today's culture? Now, I'm not asking you to take time to judge everyone else. Search your own heart. You know the water that you swim in. 
how might you be tempted, right, to compromise? And I think this is a time in which we could just share honestly, because if any one of us is sitting here going, oh yeah, no problem, I've got this. You know, social media's got nothing on me. You know, celebrities have nothing on me. My friends have nothing on me. You're lying. Our culture today really is driving people away from God. So I think that should be applicable for each and every one of you. It is for me. Hope you can talk about that. Secondly, if you get there, or if you just want to jump there, whatever you like to do, what steps can you take to engage the culture as a follower of Jesus rather than to run away from culture or just to blend in with the world? So how can you personally take that third way of not hiding, but yet of not just you know, being nonchalant and blending in? How can you just one step at a time live out your faith and follow Jesus with others in this world as a collegian in your on your campus with your friends where you work in your community something tangible something specific because then you're able to walk out of here today and try to live it up you know the call to repent is not a mental change only a call to repent is well okay whatever you're going to change change it so that's where I'd like for you guys to be today, that you walk out of here after your community groups and be like, well, I want to change something. I know I can't do this alone. I know I'm going to need help. I know I need more feeding from God's word. I know I need to pray more, but I'm going to change something because I want to follow Christ. All right, so let me close in prayer. And then um, is there a closing song for us today? Okay, last time. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for tonight. We thank you, Lord, for this word to the church of Pergamum that has so much relevance to us today. We thank you, Lord, because, Father, you didn't save us just to abandon us to our own, but you saved us so that in our lives and through one another's help and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in us, Father, that we could become transformed day by day into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Father, help us just to be honest with ourselves and wrestle with the ways in which we are tempted and distracted to pursue like the church of program idolatry, placing other things and people above you and sexual morality, which is just sinning and lusting and doing things and wanting things outside of the bounds of marriage. Father, help us, God, just to be honest and help us to encourage one another and help us to hold each other accountable and pray for each other. We thank you, Father, that Jesus spoke to churches in Revelation. He spoke to people not just picking on one person. And so each of us here tonight, Father, we can belong and we can be people that can journey and follow Jesus together as turf, as a part of this fellowship, as collegians. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And we do want to praise you, Father, that right now we live still in a country where we have the freedom to worship. And we give you thanks for that. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us indeed to engage our culture in a way where we can live out because we're aiming to pursue Jesus with everything that we do and everything that we are, we can live out our faith every day for people to see. We want to pray, Lord, that you would be with us, God. Maybe we come here broken tonight. Maybe we come here and church is new for us and we're hearing and we're responding and receiving from your word, but we need a lot more guidance from you. May we encourage each other tonight during community group time and may we keep the conversations going through the weekend and into the time ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.